Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced, so people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Now, in the middle of all of this, as I said, the Muslims were persecuted. Uh, it was very difficult. So the Prophet ﷺ at one point, he said, okay, in the fifth year of his prophecy uh, or his commissioning, so uh, he lived in Mecca for 13 years So after, as a prophet. So after five years... He told the Muslims, there is a good king in a good country, or you know, kingdom, a country is our language, kingdom. Go to him because nobody is treated unjustly there. Nobody is treated wrongly there. And he sent the companions and some of the male companions, the female companions, some of the children to Abyssinia, which then was called Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia. And this was, uh, ironically, in the month of Rajab, the month that we're in, in now, which is one of the four sacred months of Islam. We have four sacred months. Three of them are next to each other, Dhul Qa'dah, Dhul Hijjah, and Muharram, the 11th, 12th, and 1st month. And then there's Rajab all by itself, uh, the, the fourth of the sacred months. So in year five of the, of the um, I guess five before the Hijrah, you can say, in the month of Rajab, the Prophet ﷺ sent the companions and Jafar ibn Abi Talib with them to Ethiopia. This model is perhaps the most model that we will identify with. And now, as I said in the beginning, the, the, the goal is not to find like which one we fit in. The goal is to take from all of it and benefit from all of it together for our predicament, our modern predicament. But of all of the examples that we have, this is the shortest but yet the most one that makes sense for our predicament. And unfortunately, at the same time, the one that the ulama in the past least talked about. And I'll, I'll, I'll address that in a little bit. When they went, there were 11 men and 4 women. They stayed Rajab, Sha'ban, and Ramadan. And then they came back for a little bit, and they, the, things were so good, they asked the Prophet if they could go back again. And then they went back again for a second time. At that time, there were about 90. Okay? 90 companions men, women, and children, some of them were born there, living as a religious protected minority in this Christian kingdom. When they arrived there, Jafar, he goes and he addresses the Najashi in a very long thing. He says three main points. The first point we already talked about in, the, my in beginning remarks, what life was like in Mecca. So he said, look, things were bad. God sent us this prophet He's light upon light, and they just won't leave us alone. So he explained to him what was wrong. The second thing is from his own volition, he explained to him 
He said, what does he, this man you, you claim is a prophet, what does he say? He doesn't say, you know, he says you have to stand in the sink and make wudu and clean your feet, you know, or some of these oddities that, that people think are odd. For us, it's like, that's what we do. But, you know, the outside world, I, I hate to be the one to break it to you. They find this is very odd. If you walked into a bathroom and saw someone standing in the sink, you would be really concerned. Yourself, even if they were Muslim, you're like, whoa, what was that? He didn't begin by saying those things. He began by saying what the Prophet ﷺ taught them about Christ And he began reciting the chapter of Mary. Why did he do that? Because he's smart. He's, he is trying to make this foreigner understand that what he believes, what the Prophet ﷺ taught him, is the same thing that he believes is the same thing that that nation is built on. It's based on the same thing. And that's why after he finished reciting the Najashi, he said, what Christ brought and what your prophet brought came from the same source. Meaning he tried to make him understand that they had the same values, that they had the same principles. People, you know, they think, oh, he said that because, you know, he wanted him to convert and he was making dawah. You know, it's the last thing on his mind. He's fleeing for his life. And unfortunately, the Quraysh came with them. They were on, their, on the pursuit. They wouldn't leave them alone. And this leads to the third point. So the next day, the Quraysh, they're like, no, 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 they're lying. Ask them what they really say about Christ. But Jafar, he was honest. He said, we say that Christ is the son of Mary, a prophet, a great prophet. No prophet between Christ and Sayyidina Muhammad Wasallam in the Islamic belief. But he was a man. And he was honest, so he didn't lie about it. He didn't say, well, well you know, he's special and, you know, he's... He was honest. He was honest when he was asked an honest question. And because of that, the Najashi protected them and maintained the right to assemble and the right to worship. This idea, I mean, we're all honest, inshallah, so th that we get. But this idea of shared values is very important. People want others to believe that Islam does not share the values of the modern world, does not share the values of democracy, does not share the values of the West, so on and so forth. And this is not true. This doesn't mean that everything is compatible because democracy is something that sort of came together, you know, after a lot of fumbling since the 1700s till now. So it's relatively new. Islam has been around for a while. And, but Islam has the ability to adopt and, and promotes, as a matter of fact, many of these ideas of equality before the law, of freedom of belief, of freedom of expression, uh, of the dignity of the human being, so on and so forth. These are our values, Islamic values, and there are values, whether we're American or we're British or French or, or whatever, there are values as well. And that's how we need to present ourselves. Not because it's some sort of like ploy or duplicity, because this is actually what we believe in. And these values upon which this society is founded are our values as well. Now we might differ on you know, some uh, branches of, 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 of our understandings or something like that. But the idea of participation in the system and the freedom to assemble the way we have no one's outside you know, ready to gang us up for what we're saying, we are free to worship and assemble. And we believe in these type of principles that all men are and women are created equal uh, in the eyes of God. Maybe we all have different roles. You know, I, I, I could never play in the NBA. That's not, I'm not going to say it's not fair. We all have our own human 
constraints, our own humanity, but we're all morally equal. So this is very important that we remember this as far as navigating our identities. That there is nothing wrong with our identities as Muslims and as modern people or Muslims and Westerners or Muslims and Americans, for example, or any other sort of Western nation. This is very important. The other thing is that they, they went to live as a religious minority. What did they do when they were there? Unfortunately, right after this incident, the Najashi's kingdom was attacked by a neighboring you know, a person that meant the kingdom harm, that, that meant the nation harm. So there was a national security threat. There was a threat against the homeland. And the companions that were there, they said, this was the most time we were scared. Because if the Najashi fell, the whole reason we came would have been gone in the first, will be, be even worse. Because we're foreigners and we're a religious minority. So what did they do? They participated in the battle with the Najashi against his enemy. And when the Najashi won, the Muslims, they said, this was the most time we were happy, the most joy we experienced was when, when Allah gave victory to the Najashi over his enemy. Because their homeland is one. So this is now their home. They are, at that time there is not this concept of citizenship the way we understand citizenship. But there was a concept of citizenship that once you go somewhere and you stay a certain amount of time, you are part of that land. Even in the books of fiqh we have this idea. And because of this idea of being attributed to a place if you live there longer, this is how a lot of the ulama understood and accepted the concept of citizenship as it emerged in the modern nation state, which is another topic. So when, when I say that I use the concept of citizenship, I don't want people to think I'm like some reform modernist person just trying to reread. I'm just using a word that we understand. There's obviously differences, but the Muslims now are part of this homeland, part of this kingdom, part of this nation. And they fought when there was a, a, a threat against the homeland. And they celebrated, and even the companions, Zubair ibn al-Awwam, he was decorated, a decorated war veteran, because the Najashi decorated him and honored him for his valor and his bravery in the battle. And he was given a spear as a gift, as a, as a you know, that was his medal at the time. And this spear was then given to the Prophet Wasallam, and he would... He had it with him on like special occasions and on Eid day and things like that. And the Khulafat, they would carry the spear and they would, one Khalif would give it to the next Khalif after him, so on and so forth. So this was like an honored token of this time, that the spear that the Najashi gave to Zubair for his valor in battle. And because of this, a lot of the fuqaha, and this comes to sort of a, a, just a you know, small commentary on, on how some of the fuqaha or some of the ulama talk about this or don't talk about this in the past, is they say that it's permissible in this type of situation to fight, to participate in this battle if one is scared for one's life as a minority. But then some of them they say, including Imam al-Shafi and others, are like, yeah, but, but really Najashi became Muslim, so he was Muslim, so they were fighting with the Muslims. And they had this like problem admitting that it was permissible to fight in, if one was living as a minority somewhere and one's homeland was attacked. And here we pause because you know somebody can come out and say I'm making this up or I'm you know disagreeing with all of these people. That the 
ulama of the past, they had a different perspective than our perspective. The ulama, the medieval jurists that write about this when, when a lot of our legal literature was, was you know, codified and things like that, they wrote from a perspective of strength, of political strength, of political hegemony. There was no idea that some Muslims will go you know, into the yonder and live as a minority. And that's why they glossed over this period of the, of the Abyssinian period, not because they didn't understand it or they didn't respect it or anything like that. There was no real utility at their time for talking endlessly the way we are now about it. Because the Muslim world was so big, was so strong, was you know, so expansive. The idea that there was like a Muslim minority community in Europe or even you know, across this big body of water, they didn't even know there was something there, was not even on their minds. And this reminds us that while we inherit our tradition, our intellectual tradition, and while we respect our intellectual tradition, our intellectual tradition is open for criticism and is open for critique with certain parameters. So we're not here saying all of the, no one understood this except me. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we benefit from it what we were meant to benefit from it. But like them, we need to apply our interpretive methodology to find the most compatible way to live our life as Muslims now. Because the books that we've inherited, that's exactly what Imam al-Shafi was doing. When he wrote his works, when he came up with his opinions, he was finding the most compatible way to become a Muslim at that time. And this is something that will never end. This charge for all of us never ends. That we have to constantly find how we can benefit from what the Prophet ﷺ left us, from what Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an, how we best take that and apply it to our current predicament. So this is a little bit about the Najashi. In conclusion, you know, the Prophet ﷺ exchanged letters with him, exchanged presents with him. So this idea of... Um, ties and alliances, it will make more sense when we get to the Medina period we talk about next time, but this was also something that the Prophet ﷺ engaged in. He was inclined to peace, he was inclined to uh, uh, alliances uh, rather than struggle and warfare. And this example of coexistence, I think for us, makes the most sense because this is really what describes us. We are a religious minority, uh, but we are citizens of this homeland and as such like the Muslims in Abyssinia like the companions in Abyssinia we care about this homeland we are happy when something goes well we are worried when there's a threat and we stand and we fight when we are attacked this is the attitude that we have to have because this is the attitude of the of the the the, the Prophet has left us the attitude of the companions and this is the only thing that really makes sense when you think about it also, of interest note, before we talk about sort of those two topics, and I want to hear from you, is that after the Prophet ﷺ left Mecca to Medina, after he migrated himself, after the 10 years in Mecca as a prophet, many of the companions in Abyssinia remained, because that's how happy they were. They didn't go, all of them, you know, to Medina. They remained, living as a religious minority. So this idea that... that we're like somehow sinning by living here and we have to go join the Islamic State. This is ridiculous. Because for even from the early community, this was the attitude that they had. That things were so good for them, things were so comfortable for them, that they remained, remained living there.